0: And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi.
1: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
0: India has banned the export of some of its enormous supplies of white rice, and this will hit poor countries harder. As climate change threatens harvests the world over, expect other countries to rein in their grains in much the same way. And
1: it's pretty easy to get your hands on milk that didn't involve a cow. But consider dairy products made from real milk proteins that are also moo-free. We visit a startup that's using fermentation to make an utterly cowless cheese. First up though,
0: secrecy that North Korea holds, there's one key area where the country's leaders aim to show off on an international stage. The parade ground. Last week, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un put on a military show to mark 70 years since the fighting of the Korean War ended. In Pyongyang, the country's capital, Thousands of beaming soldiers marched past crowds of applauding party officials. Weapons were on display too, including intercontinental ballistic missiles and drones that closely resembled those used by the U.S. armed forces. On show two for the first time since 2018 were international guests. Posied up next to Kim Jong-un on a terrace overlooking the festivities were Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, And members of a Chinese delegation.
2: It's really noteworthy that there were actually people in the country there to view it from outside.
0: Andrew Knox is The Economist's Korea's correspondent.
2: It's the first time that there have been visitors to North Korea since before the pandemic, really. The only people we know to have actually gone in during that time are the Chinese ambassador and some staff and an American soldier who sprinted across the line between the two countries quite recently. Some have interpreted the presence of foreigners in North Korea as an indication that maybe the country, which has been locked up since January 2020, might be slowly reopening. But to be perfectly honest, there's scant evidence for that conclusion.
0: Why have they had restrictions in place for so long?
2: Well, North Korea has always taken a pretty idiosyncratic approach to the pandemic. They've always been extremely germophobic, even during past pandemics, and it's a rather xenophobic regime. So they've approached COVID-19 with a paranoid vigilance. They prevented anyone coming in right back at the start and have maintained a pretty strict seal on the country ever since. And that's really taken a toll on ordinary North Koreans, many of whom depend on informal trade from mostly China in order to feed themselves and their family. None of that, of course, has mattered to Kim Jong-un, the country's dictator, who's been doing fine over the pandemic. Being able to control the country in this way has allowed him to exert a degree of control that has been really beneficial to him. And it's not just over ordinary peoples and their market activity, but also over the party and all of the institutions of North Korea. Having the country locked away from foreign interference also has given him an opportunity to continue with his big project of developing North Korea's weapons programs. And he's really benefited from the fact that America is distracted both in Ukraine and with its increasingly catchy relationship with China. Given all this, there's really no advantage to Kim to opening up particularly. I mean, he's benefited enormously from this control and he's going to want to hold on to it for as long as he can.
0: Okay, on this question of control, Kim Jong-un was already a supreme leader. So how could he possibly gain even more control than he already had?
2: So the North Korean regime's control over the country is pretty extreme by comparison to any other country in the world, but there are always aspects of life that are difficult to control, and especially since a big famine in the 1990s, there's been an increasing degree of marketization, you know, small village markets trading in the daily necessities of life, mostly supplied by trade, both licit and illicit, coming over from China. So the pandemic has given him an opportunity to Reimpose impose control over those kind of non-approved activities, as well as sort of streamline some of the institutions of the country and make sure that they answer properly to him, including both party organizations and, to a degree, the army, although that's really been a much longer-term project of his that he's been sort of engaged in over the last decade of his reign.
0: And what has that meant for the average North Korean?
2: Since the country's been sealed off, very little information has emerged beyond purely anecdotal report. Even certain people, you know, who are pulling delivery carts have been reported to face really strict punishments, including being sent to labor camps. The UN's World Food Program has also reported that the number of malnourished people in North Korea has raised by about 10% for the period of 2020 to 2022 compared to the period of 2019 to 2021.
0: Okay, Andrew, the obvious elephant in the room here is the country's nuclear program. And you mentioned earlier that it's prospered while these restrictions have been in place. Tell us a bit more about that.
2: Over the last few years, the Norse Arsenal has not only become much larger, it seems, but it's become a lot more diverse. So they've been trying out a variety of new kits, and that includes both different kinds of missiles, but also different ways of launching the missiles, which means that they have a much wider array of threats that they can use. Now, no one really knows exactly how many nuclear weapons they have, but estimates on the stockpile range from them having enough fissile material for 20 to as many as 116 weapons. And the program continues, so the longer... It goes, the more material they're able to produce. They've also been testing new kinds of weapons that, while not fundamentally changing the nature of the threat, do make it a bit more acute. So on July 12th, they tested for a second time a rocket called the Hwasong-18, which is the first solid-fuel missile capable of reaching the continental United States that they've ever developed. Such missiles are able to be launched a little bit quicker than liquid-fueled ones, and they're more mobile, which means that it's harder to take them out in advance. Last year, they tested a record number of missiles. i have never shot that much metal into the sky before.
0: So what are you going to be looking out for going forward?
2: So intelligence officials in both South Korea and America have long been saying that the North Koreans are ready to do a nuclear weapons test. And this is something they haven't done since 2017. It's thought that even when they do it, what they're going to be testing is probably that they have the capacity to miniaturize nuclear weapons. What this essentially means is that they would have basically achieved both the first and the second strike capacity against both America and South Korea, which is a bit of a deterrence nightmare, frankly. There are worryingly few options to check this progress that they've been rapidly making. It used to be that tests of big new North Korean weapons, especially ICBMs or nuclear tests, would incur the wrath of the international community, and the United Nations Security Council would gather together, issue new sanctions, and try and slow down their progress. The problem is these days that Russia and China, who are both members of the Council, have lost any interest in preventing North Korea's progress. They're both perfectly willing to help North Korea evade existing sanctions and completely unwilling to impose new ones.
0: So what does that mean for the future of the weapons program?
2: At some point, North Korea may feel the need to come back to the bargaining table. We've seen these sort of cycles of developing weapons and then indicating a willingness to talk about Maybe bargaining them away in exchange for concessions before. But for the time being, it really doesn't look like they've any interest in talking, and America and South Korea have no interest in setting terms on which they might be willing to talk. That's not really a problem for Mr. Kim. Things have been going pretty well for him, and the longer he waits, the more developed his programs are, which means the more leverage he has. For now, he can just sort of kick back at his beach resort in sign and relax.
0: Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
3: Hi, this is Matt.
4: And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.
1: Heavy rains have wiped out many of India's rice paddies, so many, in fact, that India's government has banned the export of some varieties of white rice. Officials are trying to prevent spikes in rice prices, which are already up by nearly 12% in the past year. But protecting Indian consumers will come at a cost for foreign ones, many of them in poor countries that are dependent on India's supply. It's a window into difficult trade-offs that will become common as climate change progresses.
4: India is the world's biggest rice exporter by far. In 2022, it accounted for 40% of global rice trade by volume.
1: Vishnu Padmanabhan is a data journalist at The Economist.
4: So that meant it shipped 22 million tons of rice to more than 140 countries. And so only some of that then is now banned for export. Yes, that's right. So India exports many types of rice. Its most famous export is basmati, which is a premium variety that's more fragrant. But while that accounts for a big chunk of India's rice exports, more than half of India's rice that it ships abroad is actually the non-Basmati variety. Those are the varieties that the government has just banned. And these varieties tend to be cheaper than Basmati and are especially popular in poorer places such as Bangladesh, Nepal, and several countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And so with this export ban, their supply will reduce, which will drive up prices these countries pay, and that will mean global rice prices overall which were increasing anyway, will increase even more and could touch record highs. Data from the UN's food agency suggests that global rice prices increased by 14% over the past year and are close to the highest levels they've been since the food price crisis of 2008.
1: So why is it that rice prices were already so high?
4: Well, this is mostly because of climate-related supply concerns, which are similar type of concerns that are also pushing up the prices of other food items. Rice is especially vulnerable to El Niño. That's the weather pattern that recently emerged. And it brings hotter temperatures and drier conditions to large parts of Asia, where a lot of rice is grown. For example, hotter and drier weather in China, which is a big rice producer, has reduced soil moisture in rice-growing regions there to the lowest level in more than a decade. And the Chinese government, to preempt a rice shortage, has started stocking up on rice. In the first four months of this year, it increased its rice imports from Vietnam by 70%. Similarly, Indonesia has also started stocking up. It has increased imports from Vietnam by 2,500% in the same time period.
1: So this export ban then in global rice terms couldn't come at a worse time.
4: Yes, because many of the countries that will be worst affected by the ban are food importing countries that are already suffering from soaring food costs. So just to give you an example, food prices in Benin, which is the biggest importer of rice in Africa, are now 40% higher than they were in 2020. And then there's also another risk that India banning exports could trigger other countries to do the same. For example, in 2008, Vietnam banned rice exports when it faced similar price pressures, and that immediately prompted India, China, and Cambodia to follow suit as well. And take it together, a World Bank study estimated that all those bans increased global rice prices by 52%.
1: Is there a sense then that other countries are going to follow India's lead this time?
4: Vietnam's government has urged its traders to ensure there is enough Domestic supply, but it has not gone as far as to ban rice exports. But if they do decide to, and other countries implement rice export bans, the effects could push prices up even higher than they were in 2008, given how close we are to that point right now. But even if that doesn't happen this time, governments are likely to face this choice increasingly often because of a couple of long term trends. One is that demand for rice is increasing, especially in Africa, where appetite for rice is growing because of urbanization and economic growth. At the same time, yields are stagnating in large parts of the world because of climate change, higher temperatures and more frequent extreme events such as floods are reducing productivity of rice farms. And because rice is such an important source of sustenance for so many millions of people around the world, the more its supply is threatened, the stronger the temptation is for governments to ban its exports. Vishnu, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason.
0: Grand this is Hackney Wick.
3: Recently I went out to Hackney Wick, which is this up-and-coming neighbourhood on the outskirts of East London.
1: Marie Seger is a data journalist at The Economist.
3: And I went there to visit the offices and the lab of a company called Better Dairy and to experience what could just possibly be the cowless future of cheese.
1: The cowless future of cheese. Tell me more.
3: Yeah, as strange as that might sound to you, Besser Dairy is a three-year-old British cheesemaker. And they're among several startups that are creating real dairy products without cow's milk or any animals' milk for that matter. And I went to visit them in their shiny new offices. And it was it was really cool. So the right inside of their offices is the lab. So they're patry dishes and people were running around in lap coats and that's where the magic happens and at the end of my tour the founder and I sat down in their test kitchen and we shared a little cheese board between the two of us which was a really great experience
1: well go on tell me how cowless cheese is what, what was it like
3: So there were three different cheeses. They were all cheddar, but they were matured at different stages. The first one was just two weeks old, and it tasted rubbery and not particularly good. But apparently two weeks is way too early to eat any cheese. So I tried the two-month old one, and that was so much better. I mean, it was really astonishing, actually. It's just like real cheese. And then there was another one that was kind of a bit closer maybe to parmesan because it had matured for that long. And both of those, I thought, tasted really great.
1: Okay, so it looks like cheese. It tastes like cheese after a certain point. But how does it work?
3: Yes, so better dairy is using something called precision fermentation. Their synthetic dairy is made with exactly the same ingredients as conventional milk or dairy. But instead of getting the main ingredient from a living cow, better dairy derives it from yeast. So they have these stainless steel fermenters, and in there lives the yeast, and the yeast is fat sugar, and it works a little bit like brewing beer. So from that sugar, the yeast produces milk proteins, and that milk protein is then the raw material that is used to produce the cheese.
1: So why go through all of this challenge at all, though? Milk is fine for quite a lot of people.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So there are a lot of advantages to not having a cow to produce the milk. So the first one is that cows need antibiotics and those get into the milk. Cows produce hormones which get into the milk. Both of those aren't good for humans. And cows also need water and land. And they also burn a lot and produce lots of greenhouse gas emissions. So in total, dairy production is responsible for about 3% of annual planet warming emissions, which is almost twice as much as aviation. And stainless steel fermenters can do away with a lot of that.
1: But so can a lot of these sort of plant-based alternatives to milk. What about oat milk, almond milk?
3: Yes, that's a really good point. So there are lots of alternatives that already fill cafes and supermarket shelves. But while many people are happy with these plant-based milk alternatives, I, for example, love oat milk. With cheeses, I think it's a bit more difficult. And the plant-derived products up until now have just fallen a bit short. I don't know if you've ever tried cheese based on mushrooms. It does not work, in my opinion. And lovers of real dairy still need cows and goats to produce milk for their cheeses. And precision fermentation companies really hope to change that and take a fat slice of the $900 billion global dairy market.
1: And Better Dairy isn't the only company trying to get that fat slice.
3: No, definitely not. There's, there's a number of companies that are competing. So one is Perfect Day, which is based in California, and they already sell synthetic milk, ice cream, and cream cheeses, mostly in America, There's also Remilk, which is an Israeli startup, and big investors are happy to pour money into the precision fermentation sector. And overall, it has raised nearly $3 billion from investors since the start of 2021.
1: So as far as you can tell, plenty of money going into it. But what about when the the cheese comes out the other end? When am I going to see some of the stuff in in the grocery store?
3: Unfortunately, I think it will take a little while, so... Whilst there are several startups who say they can produce and could scale up, there are still challenges. One is that you know, precision fermented cheese doesn't sound appetizing to many people. A quarter of respondents to a survey in America said that they weren't keen to try it. So producers try to call it animal-free dairy, which does definitely sound a bit more appealing. But it really depends on whether regulators will agree with them calling it animal-free dairy or animal-free milk or animal-free cheese. And there are lots of hurdles. So in the US, obviously, some products are already at the market, but the process there takes about half as long as the process to get regulatory approval in Europe. And finally, what many startups say is their main challenge now is the cost. So one fermenter holds about 30 liters of milk and it costs around £150,000 or $190,000. Meanwhile, if you want to buy a dairy cow in Britain, which produces about as much, that will only set you back £1,600 or roughly $2,000. So that's a real difference. But the hope is that the price will go down over time. And you know. In a few years, maybe we can enjoy an amontala together that has never seen the inside of a cow.
1: I concede that my mouth isn't watering yet, but I'll withhold judgment till then. Marie, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jason.
0: That's so all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at
1: And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? We've got a deal at the moment for a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.